Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Ultraspeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and... Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is free call, 1-855-450-NOAA. It's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. We also have our interactive Jitsi room as part of our Matrix Federation universe. It's all up. You can join us by going to geeklab.ninja. There you can participate in the chat. If you want to watch, you can do that. If you'd like to participate in the chat, you can do that. And then the interactive Jitsi room embedded right there into the chat. You're able to uh, participate in the discussion that way. Our first email comes in from Ray. Ray writes in and says, Hi, Noah. In episode 209, you were answering a listener email and recommended X2Go for remote desktop support. I wanted to recommend Apache Guacamole. You can read more at guacamole.apache.org. It's an open, it's an open source uh, remote support software, and there is no client requirement other than an HDMI MEL5 capable browser. The software can proxy multiple clients running RDP, VNC, and SSH. I've been running it for about seven to eight years and work uh, and use it to work for access for my home servers. Enjoy your show. Thanks, Ray. So I really appreciate you sending that in, Ray. As it turns out, I was in the need of an alternative remote uh, support solution. At AltaSpeed, we had been using SimpleHub for a long time, and indeed, it continues to be one of the best self-hosted remote support solution things that are out there. Um, but one of the things that it doesn't do very well is it has not worked very well on Mac lately, and we run into a lot of privilege escalation issues in the way that Apple implements security. Um, and so what we've done is kind of been using um, the Chrome remote uh, support that's built into the browser, and that seems to work fairly well on Macs. But we were looking for another solution, and the fact that this is open source and can be self-hosted immediately drives it to the top of my list. So thanks, Ray, for sending that in. I appreciate it. We'll have a link to the Guacamole Project in the shop, in the show notes, podcast.asnoahshow.com. Our second email comes in tonight uh, from Kyle. Kyle writes in and says, hi, Noah. Minnesota is rolling out a COVID app. I'm wondering what your uh, first impressions are in terms of privacy. I know you've talked about COVID apps before on your show, so I wanted to get your impression of Minnesota's approach. And then he links to covidwaremn.com and uh, has a link to their privacy policy. Um, And so uh, just uh, backing up... um, Backing up a little bit, to a certain degree, a lot of the really essential things are actually not even in control at the state level. First of all, the way the system works is your phones generate unique Bluetooth keys. And every everybody else's phone that is running this software also generates Bluetooth keys, and the keys are exchanged anonymously and are rotated every 20 minutes so that, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the same single key can't be tracked um, by one person, by, by somebody else. Uh, you can opt out of this entirely by going into your settings on either your Android phone or your iOS device and turning it off. And the health department, uh, if you choose to participate, is only given the data if you choose to go into the app and say that you're infected, in which case then it alerts other users that have exchanged keys with you in the last 14 days so they know that they should be tested. What Google got right, what Apple got right, was 
limiting their ability for the government or anybody else to reach into the phone and actually extract data. There was a tremendous amount of pressure from governments around the world for Apple and Google to give them direct access to the customers. Just, hey, just tell us where these people are and when they're going. We can figure all sorts of things out. And Google and Apple both said, no, 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 that's not the way we're going to do it. Uh, we are going to we are going to set this up in in such a way that this is you're going to have to go through us and if you'd like to join us in our interactive jitsi uh i do have you guys up uh, so you guys can just join and, and and jump in we won't bother with the chat room but the health department is only given that data if you wish to participate the real credit though uh for the privacy that does exist really goes to people like edward snowden and people like len greenwald because the attention that they brought to companies like google and apple and the pressure that they put on those companies through their advocacy of here's what these companies are doing, not to screw over their customers just because the government wants something. And that was certainly the case in the, with this last round of, of, of Snowden leaks. And so when you start looking at the direction that Apple and, and Google are going, they are definitely taking their customers' privacy more seriously. The part where I, I get a little bit nervous is... The, 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 the fundamental problem here is you have a company that already made the decision that they were going to load this software onto your phone. They further made the decision that they were going to prominently push it, right? When you go into the Play Store, always in your face. Hey, this app, do you want to enable it? Hey, this app, you want to enable it? Hey, there's this app, you want to enable it? All of this stuff was built and baked right into the operating system. If it was truly a benefit for you, then you would just, it could be optional. Right. You wouldn't have to you wouldn't have to you wouldn't have to you wouldn't have to participate. Um, but that's not what's happening here. Um, and so a lot of the I read through the, the covid where M, uh, MN and their privacy policy basically explains in layman's terms how these Bluetooth keys are working. So, you know, their, their questions are, how does it protect my privacy? And then it explains what those those things are. The important thing to take away from this, though, is this is not necessarily uh, anything to thank Minnesota. It's not that they've done anything exceptionally great or exceptionally poor. They're just playing by the rules that they are required to play by in order to access this API. The question you should be asking, the question that I've been asking, the question that I encourage everybody to ask is, why wasn't this app optional to begin with? Why, did, why does it have to be pushed out by force into the two most popular operating systems? And of course, you can speculate as to the reasons to that. Um, that's where I believe that the unwelcomed, unnecessary threat vector that has been introduced now exists and where my frustration with that is i just don't like things being on my phone and that would be true of not just the COVID app it's true of facebook it's true of twitter it's true of any application that i don't have any intention of using that exists on my phone period end of story don't really care why it was there otherwise our next email comes in from james james writes in and says noah thank you for your show and allowing time to answer questions i have a laptop that's used daily in a vehicle for work I back up to an external portable hard drive that has new data at the end of the workday. Then I bring that portable external drive into the house and R-sync it back to the hard drive that's in another computer kept in a safe place. Uh, 
The rsync backup takes considerably long to complete, even though there's only a few gigs of new data to be saved. Is there a better command I should be using for backing up my data that wouldn't take as much time? Or how would you back up the data if you were in my situation? I desire the simplicity of hooking up the two drives to the computer and running a single line to back up the drive, but do not desire to have to wait for rsync to go through every file on the entire drive every day. Thank you so much for your time and consideration to answer my question. Respectfully, James. Um, I don't know of a faster way uh, to 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 properly back up large directories. We use rsync uh, to to uh, to do all sorts of kind of backing up everything from little tiny drives to uh, big clusters of servers that are are syncing stuff back together constantly. Um, ZFS send is there are I shouldn't say that there are ways to do it because you can you can start using compression and, and those kinds of things, but they're 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 much more complicated to set up. And frankly, the kind of environment that you're describing here, um, I'm guessing this is this laptop is out in the field. This laptop has a substantially higher degree of getting damaged than your ordinary office laptop because your office bounces around. And so that cup of coffee that you set in, on, on that dash or wherever, those kinds of things play into it. And so, you know, if I have something like that out in the field, um, I'm I, I'm really concerned about getting the data backed up every single night. Um, and so the, the, the typical things that I would think to put in place just aren't going to work here. The only other thing I could think of, and the way that I deal with my personal workstation at home, and it's really just to have a, a because I have a massive data set and I like to have a copy of that both at the office and at my house. Um, I have two file servers that are there. And, but for your purposes, you could say your work laptop out in your car and the place that you eventually want the data to wind up in your house. And I just have a small little case, uh, with a, with a second little NAS in it. And the second little NAS, uh, it's not really a, I don't even really know if I'd describe it as a NAS, but it's a, it's an enclosure. I'll have a link for you in the show notes, but it's an enclosure that, um, that has a bunch of connectors at the back that allows it to access those drives. And then through a button sequence on the front, I can set, uh, how I want those drives configured. The reason that may be beneficial to you is uh, the, it provides you a couple of different options for connecting um, over to your computer. And that will depend on what ports your, your laptop has on it. Uh, if it's uh, more of a business series computer, you may have um, things like uh, eSATA ports and stuff like that. Uh, and, and if not, um, there may be a way that you could, uh, that you could implement something like a, like a small little NAS that, uh, that could sync data back and forth in your car and you could bring that back and forth. Um, and, and, I'm, and maybe that could happen overnight or something. I'm not sure. It sounds like you really have probably the best possible solution. Um, that just may be the boat that you're in. But what we're learning is as, as we do a different way of doing feedback, as we categorize the feedback and we kind of bring these in and then we scan for the next week when new feedback comes in, if any of the, 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 the new feedback addresses the old feedback. And so somebody else out there might have an option. And if you have an option uh, for James, then write in at live at asknoshow.com. Our fourth email uh, comes from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, hey, what is a chief self-hosted solution for a doorbell or CCTV intercom without the cloud corporation Wi-Fi or Internet? Raspberry, 5, Raspberry, Raspberry 4 is over $100, uh, $100 and there is no such thing as a cheap Raspberry Pi 3 in Australia. Ironically, it's cheaper to import them from AliExpress in China rather than local retailers on top. The Raspberry Pi Foundation lacks the failures uh, to AU... 
Um, so here, here are your options, really, Charlie. You've got a couple of them. Um, your cheapest option is to use something like the Pine Cube, and you can build your own solution. Of course, in that particular case, you're going to be finding the software yourself. You're going to be loading it onto uh, to the device. But that's or using something like a Raspberry Pi with a USB connected camera. Those are the ways that you're going to get the least expensive. Um, uh, camera, and if you can't find those parts, or it's difficult to get those in your country, um, then then your only option is to go buy an actual proper solution. Um, now, there's a couple different ways you can do this. The the one of the things that you can do is you can split the video and the intercom portion of that up, and depending on what you want out of the system, that can make some sense. It's also a little bit cheaper to do it that way. So the door intercom that uh, that we've used numerous times is the Elgo. And it's it's made it's actually an Australian company, I think, and it, it's an Elgo door intercom system. And essentially, what it is is it's a uh, a weatherproof mounted SIP phone with a button, essentially. And uh, you log into the web UI and you give it a SIP server uh, address and you give it a username and a password, and it logs in as a SIP uh, extension. And one of the fields in the web UI is what number or what you know, do you want it to dial when somebody presses the button. And so you can configure that to either go to a direct person or you can configure it to go to something like a call group. So at our house, when you press the button, it rings, but it rings a uh, a house group. And so there are certain phones in the house that are part of that group and any of those phones um, can be picked up and answered. Now, once the call is connected, then you can talk to the person as if you were connected over a phone. But the additional option it gives you is when you press a, a, a specified DTMF key on your phone, it can trigger a door lock. So, you know, I have an access control system on the front of my house. And so that triggers the access control system, opens up the door. So that way, you know, when I'm sitting down in my lab and working and the, the Landry's guy shows up to go fix the furnace and he shows up at the door and uh, I can just, I see him on the camera and he pushes a little button, says I'm here and I dial six and the door opens and he comes in and does his thing. I never even had to get up off my desk. Um, so in those kinds of situations, uh, that's that solution works really well. And in that scenario, again, you can use whatever camera you want. Typically we use access and I, I have an M2025 outside my house, but you could certainly get away with less expensive cameras. Recently, we've been using a lot of GeoVision uh, cameras. If you're looking for something that is a little bit lower on the price point, um, they deliver a pretty good value and their firmware updates seem to be fairly regular. So I, I, we've been pretty happy with them. The only downside is uh, resetting them requires you to contact the company and send in the serial number. And so that, of course, I'm not a fan of because it means that I'm reliant upon GeoVision to stay in business to continue to maintain those products. Um, but if but the point is you can separate the, the the voice and the video, and that brings the cost down. I think the Elgo door, doorbells, $250, $300, somewhere in there. And then your camera is going to be maybe, you know, depending on what kind of camera you get, $100 and $300, somewhere in there. Um, the other option, though, is there are companies that make dedicated doorbells. Now, I don't like the Chinese uh, made ones, so I kind of exclude those. If they're an option for you, they'd go for it. They're a few hundred bucks. Um, but for me, if I was going for one of those dedicated doorbell devices, I would get the Axis one. And the Axis one is up there. It's 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 going to be considerably more expensive than your budget. But where that solution fits really nicely is if you do have the budget for it, and you're looking for a self-hosted solution, the SIP phone and the camera is all in one unit. Additionally, because the SIP phone and the camera is all in one unit, the audio can be sent to both a 
dialing or receiving SIP station, or uh, you can pull it up inside of your NVR software. And so for those reasons, I particularly like the, the access uh, door camera over uh, having the, the, the split way. But like I say, it, you know, it, it's almost another $300 to do it that way. Again, one eight fifty five four fifty. No, it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com. You can join the interactive geek lab. We talked about this. It is a uh, it is our chat room. We use it on the show, and then throughout the week, people actually have started to give feedback on the show there, and you can join it at geeklab.ninja. One of those uh, pieces of feedback said, uh, feedback for episode 209, Teams does in fact allow federation with people outside the organization. There's a setting in the Office 365 page for Teams to allow that feature. It can also communicate with other Skype users. I saw a colleague of mine who moved back to Microsoft. Um, And so I, I did a little bit of digging, and turns out, yes, absolutely, that is true. You can federate with Teams. And why that's of note to this audience is because... This is, again, a place where Microsoft has come in very late to the game, very, very well after Slack was already an established messenger, well after we already had, uh, you know, WhatsApp and, and, and Telegram and people had been communicating for, for business over Facebook for a long time. After all of that, Microsoft comes to the game and they launch their chat platform. And it takes off like gangbusters and people are using it like gangbusters. And one of the biggest... Uh, things that Matrix has going for it is the fact that it can literally talk to anything. Interestingly enough, not Teams because threading, but we're getting there. That that that's one of the strong that's one of the strongest points is is the ability to federate and the ability not to be stuck there. And so now any user that signs up for Microsoft Office 365, that person can work in another facility. And I've watched two or three times. Uh, when that functionality didn't exist, I've watched that break organizations and watched them move off of Teams because of it. So good on Microsoft for fixing that, but it also means we have to up our game on the Linux side. Uh, the, he also says that to change the password on Manjaro Fosh uh, from default, you navigate to settings, users, then change the password for the Manjaro or open a terminal and then do PSSWD. And that's what I did to change it. I just, that doesn't seem like that's, now I'm hacking Linux and I'm not... Uh, I'm I'm not I'm not testing the 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 the, uh, the phone distribution, right? Um but yeah, no, I I appreciate that uh, that tip and so we have it in there. If you have thoughts, feedbacks on the show, we invite you to send them in live at asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, we're going to start with our main uh, uh subject and we'll work our way back and um Jitsi room feel free to jump in here as we move on through this. So, uh main topic this week, obviously we're talking about CentOS and their decision uh, to restructure the way that they are going to uh, the CentOS project is going to continue. Now, understand something. I deal with this from both perspectives on a fairly regular basis. On one hand, I wear a hat at work where I work at an IT consulting company where we go out and put production solutions in for clients. And in those cases where the operating system has to work, it's not a game, it's not a test, it has to work, we go with RHEL every single time. And we go with RHEL every single time because, one, I trust that RHEL is going to be around. I trust that the that if in, it works on day one on RHEL, it will continue to work uh, the next time I, I walk into that facility, whatever year that happens to be. And also, when, the, when a client needs support for something, it's very simple to go onto redhat.com and in 10 minutes or less, I can have an account set up for that client and I can have support so that client has the ability to purchase the license they need and get the software up and running on their server. And we can do that in, in no time flat. And that's largely thanks to how dedicated Red Hat is to serving their customers well. At the same time, 
I am the guy who goes home every night and does things with my son, like give him a server with CentOS on it so that he can set up and install his Minecraft server. And the fact that my son has the ability to get hands-on experience with an enterprise-level operating system is nothing short of a miracle and fantastic. And I and everybody else who has taken advantage of that from Red Hat owes Red Hat a debt of gratitude we can never repay because I could not afford to purchase the kind of software that Red Hat makes to the quality that Red Hat makes it at the cost that it costs Red Hat to make it. And neither can you. I wouldn't be where I am today without open source. Point blank. I wouldn't. And I and I, the, open source gave me an opportunity as a kid to develop real skills on real software that I could later put into actual production with no strings attached. And I I have been. I will be. And I will continue to be forever grateful to Red Hat for everything that they have and continue to do for that community. All of that said, almost everything Red Hat does is done in the open. And so. Indeed, there's nothing stopping somebody from taking Red Hat and recompiling it and, and avoiding all of the Red Hat branding. And that's exactly what the CentOS project and Scientific Linux did. Fast forward to 2014, Red Hat takes over the CentOS project. And most people, including myself, said this is probably a really sensible thing for Red Hat to do. Why is this project recompiling code out in the open? Why doesn't Red Hat just have it and say this is our free version so that uh, we have a free version and this exists? I mean, it just makes sense, right? But this is a double-edged sword. Do you want to know what the most popular deployed VPS distribution is? Ubuntu. You want to know who makes the most money off of open source operating systems? Red Hat. There are more Ubuntu servers in production, but Red Hat still reaps the cream of the crop when it comes to paying customers. People deploy in Ubuntu precisely because the exact operating system that they're using in production is the one that they're using in testing. And my God, if that hasn't been true for most people who are getting into Linux, they started with Ubuntu because it was approachable to them as a human being and then went, oh, right, now we can run this in the server. And all of that stuff I learned, it just translates perfectly over here and it works just perfectly over there. And now VPS server uh, companies start spinning up and dedicated hosting companies start spinning up and, oh my gosh, there's Ubuntu everywhere and you can just spin it up for free. And then that environment that you learned at home and that one that you ran on your server, it's the exact same thing that's running up here on the cloud. Now take the Red Hat path. And back when I took my RHCSA test, of course, at the lab, they had rail boxes and I... I think as part of the official class, I want to say, in addition to the textbook, I think we got a copy of RHEL to take. In fact, I know we got a copy of RHEL. I think there was like a training license attached to it so you could even activate it. Um, but the instructor uh, said that he recommended to us. He said, hey, I recommend you practice on, on, on CentOS. It's easy to blow away and, and redo a number of times. And I don't remember if it was a complication with the, the training thing or maybe it was a limitation. But he, he said. He practices on CentOS, and if it works on CentOS, it's going to work on Red Hat for the test. And I have used it many, 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 many times to demonstrate to a potential client or a current client the power of RHEL and how this is going to work in production. And I've used it numerous times myself in my lab to spin something up. And hey, is this going to work? And if it is going to work, how long is it going to work? And how does it work? And I want to knock on it. And the ability and the value of being able to take that, that kind of data collection and that kind of learning experience, uh, that costs money to pay somebody to do it or to do it myself. 
And to be able to pick that structure up and then set it over in production and then add some support around it is absolutely fantastic and is absolutely necessary. Now, uh, somebody in the chat room says they disagree when they start with Ubuntu simply because they're frustrated with SE Linux and don't know how to deal with it. And uh, what I would tell you, I would say to that is that it's a, that's a training issue. Uh, yes, SE Linux can be a pain if you don't know what you're doing with it, but there are three things. First of all, turning it off is brain dead simple. Is simply go into the config file and in, in Etsy, SE Linux and change it from enabled to disabled. Secondly, uh, you, there's really no reason to ever disable SE Linux. You should just run it in permissive mode. It will flag all of the same things it would have flagged if it was in enforcing mode, but you can learn from it and learn how SE Linux works and why. So even if you have no interest in using it, you should, should still let it run in permissive mode and then you could learn. But if you didn't want to, it's very easy to shut off. So I, I don't quite... I don't know that 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 SE Linux alone is tells me, hey, that I think that's that be, that just makes Red Hat or CentOS unapproachable for people, and and they dig, they, they jump over to the Ubuntu space. But I absolutely think that the popularity and ease of onboarding of Ubuntu does, and Red Hat absolutely needs to be in that space. This decision moves them further away from that goal, and I don't know if that's intentional or if it's an acceptable byproduct to them. But it, they absolutely need to be in this space. You absolutely, as a user, have to be able to run the same code base in production as you do in testing. That's what makes testing valuable, is that we test it before we put it into production. And if what I'm running is testing is different from what I'm going to actually use in production, then we have a problem. And so go, doing away with the traditional CentOS operating system and moving to CentOS Stream, which is what has been announced, that they are going to place CentOS ahead of the development cycle for Red Hat. And so CentOS Stream will be developed first. It is not a beta. It goes through the same QA process, but it will be ahead. The development stream will be ahead. It will be upstream of RHEL proper. And that's a good decision for RHEL and it's beneficial for RHEL because all of the people who are testing on CentOS are now doing that for they're skating to where RHEL is going to be. And so RHEL can figure out in real time what changes are coming down the pipe that are going to work versus not work, which is not unlike where we found ourselves a few years ago with Fedora. If you're a Red Hat administrator back then, you ran Fedora on your laptop. I did primarily because it helped me understand where Red Hat was going to skate to. And you can still get there because even though they're they're even though CentOS Stream is no longer going to be the same code base as Red Hat proper, you still can get a free license from Red Hat so you have the ability to do things like demonstrate stuff to a client and test things in a lab environment and those kinds of things. And I, I assume to a certain extent that Red Hat thinks that that's the same thing. Well, if you want to do those things, here's how we're going to provide you with a way to do that. But I think the perspective that's missing here is that's, bower, that's borrowed time. That's, they have the right at any point in time to say, hey, are you going to buy it or are you going to get lost? And to a certain extent, that, that's fair because they paid to develop that software. But, and so to me, killing off CentOS or now CentOS is the Red Hat beta is frankly inaccurate. It's not a fair characteriz characterization of what Red Hat's decision is here. And to be honest with you, it doesn't really do anything constructive for the narrative. But this is 
point blank a foolish business decision for a company like Red Hat that's worth the money they're worth precisely because they value open source and the open source community. Precisely because Red Hat is not one of those companies that just uses the free and open source way of developing software as a superior way to develop the software they make money off of. That has never been Red Hat's MO. And I believe, and continue to believe, that Red Hat absolutely has the best interest of the community in mind, in general. Now, whether or not this specific decision, how carefully that was considered, we don't know. But I genuinely believe that Red Hat is still a community-based company. But when you look at where the most active community engagement is, it's in rolling distros, isn't it? It's in fast-paced software. In fact, one of the leading problems I've been up against for the last five years, six years, when I start telling people, and I come out and say, hey, this is what we use in production, people go, how can you use CentOS? It's so slow. Six years, so boring. How, how can't you use something really? That's the way to go. That's the general feel among the community, and that's where people are doing all of the exciting stuff. Half Some of the people that work at Red Hat are running Arch on their laptops, for crying out loud. Okay, so this idea that because CentOS is going to be ahead of the, the Red Hat upstream cycle, that makes it a beta product for Red Hat, it's just, it, it, it's taking it too far. It makes sense for a product like CentOS Streams to exist, because Red Hat should have an idea of what's coming down the pipe. Red Hat should also continue to exist in the space of having a binarily equivalent distro that people can use for free so they can get onto their platform and stay there. But CentOS was never a one-to-one -one product with RHEL. And my disappointment in our reaction as a community has been with, one, the spread of misinformation, but the two is, is this inaccurate comparison between RHEL and CentOS. As if CentOS is the same product as RHEL, it just didn't come with the price tag, and now Red Hat took that away. Yes, it's built from the same code base, but CentOS doesn't get the same security patches as fast as Red Hat gets them. And frankly, Red Hat did us the good courtesy of building this OS for free for years, and now it serves their business purpose to place it ahead of Red Hat. So this move allows people like me to test all of the stuff that I am going to have to run in production on Red Hat with a license before it's ever going to be Red Hat with a license, before my client ever expects that stuff to perform, and before I'm ultimately responsible for it. So from that perspective, this is a great new tool. The problem is, it comes at the cost of another really great tool that was equally important, in my opinion, in order to exist in the Red Hat ecosystem. Now, you still have Fedora, Right. And Fedora still has full support uh, from Red Hat. You know, the, they, they support the project. They fund it. They, they, they financially support the project. They're actively moving towards a more you know, stable like production flow. They're 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 using that kind of language in their marketing. They have a they have a focus on polish and making sure things are tuned and working well. We've seen that from the Fedora project. So maybe this works out. But I think Red Hat is going to lose space in the VPS market, in the server market in general. I think that, I think that their, their perception was, well, those customers weren't paying anyway. And yeah, okay, maybe that's true. Most of them probably aren't. But then there's the people that go to start a thing because one of the things that we like about Linux and open source software is that it's open source and that the cost of a VPS today is dirt cheap. 
literally your limits with open source software Linux and, and, and finding server and infrastructure to run it on is most of the time your imagination, not your wallet. And that's a recent change in the last 10 years or so, because that wasn't always the case. There was a time when you wanted to start something up, you had to go buy the server, then you had to find a place to host it, then you had to deal with maintaining the hardware in addition to the software, and it was a big deal. And now, uh, there's, I mean, it's just unbelievable how much faster that development and deployment cycle has become. But it relies, it fundamentally relies on people having access to the same tools and development as they have in production. And when you break that model, and again, not that CentOS was ever a perfect model for that anyway, but it was really close, and they just killed the golden goose. OVH, they're a, a, a Canadian VPS provider, and I, I use them for, for, for all of my, my testing project stuff because they have some of the cheapest VPSs out there. Uh, and they own a, a, a hardware company called Kim Sufi. And I, I think really, if I'm being honest with you, uh, the Canadian government, uh, when they're done with the servers at OVH, I think they send them over to Kim Sufi to die because it's like the, the old ones. But you know what? They're cheap. And I can get a handful of VPSs and a dedicated server for less than 100 bucks. I, I wouldn't be able to run production servers. I, I, I should say I wouldn't run production servers on Kim Sufi, but I'll absolutely test production servers on Kim Sufi because it's cheaper. But now every VPS provider, in fact, every server, server provider is going to have to navigate through the licensing waters of offering Red Hat as a distro and then having to have the process in place for a user to register for a developer license to spin that instance up. Now, I haven't gone through to figure out which providers offer that and which providers don't. What I can tell you is not all of them do offer Red Hat, and I'm starting to understand why. Actually, we've always kind of understood why. We just, the vast majority of us in the community counted on CentOS as the community representation of Red Hat. And so we could play in the exact same space the way that the Ubuntu guys do. And that tool is gone. Now, a lot of people are probably going to just go Ubuntu LTS. But if Red Hat believes that people are going to do this uh, are going to do this over spinning up an Ubuntu box, they're going to navigate the, the process of signing up for an account and, and generating a license, and however long that license lasts before it has to be renewed or whenever that process changes. By the way, I guess that's something we'll have to track now in the IT community is if, we're, if that's the route we go and we spin these up with development license, if there is an expiration date or if that ever changes, we have to you know, stay on top of that because, again, we're on borrowed time. At least that's what it feels like. And if I, build, if I go to do this and, 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 and we run into any problems... Then that comes back on Red Hat. And so to a certain extent, you can kind of understand how Red Hat probably feels like like nobody really has a leg to stand on. Because, again, they gave this to us for free for years. They never owed us this. And now we just feel the full burden of being on borrowed time, I guess. And to be honest with you, really what this is going to come down to is it'll come down to the Red Hat's ability for... To, to minimize the differences between CentOS Stream and RHEL, and when I say minimize the differences, I don't mean actually minimize the, the, the code differences, but minimize the impact to the user. And depending on how well they do that, this may work. I mean, you may get you you may just get to a point where you everybody just builds everything on CentOS Stream, and it just happens to work. And then as they make tiny little minute changes and polish, then it gets the stamp of approval with the big Red Hat logo, and it becomes RHEL. You just have to understand, people's patience 
for that is you're coming into it with a limited amount of patience. If I hit any real snag in that process, I'm bailing from it altogether. And I'm going to go to my client. I'm going to say, listen, if you want to do this right, I would suggest doing it on Red Hat. But if, you, if you're not going to do that, if you're not willing to pay for the license, then I guess we're going to have to find another way. And I don't know if what that means. I don't know if that means that we go with the Red Hat developer license. I don't know if we go with Fedora. I don't know if we go with the next community evolution of CentOS. Gregory Kutzner is the original, one of the original CentOS founders, and he published on the CentOS, uh, as a commenter on the CentOS blog today, that he's considering creating another rebuild of RHEL. He says he may even be able to hire some people to work on it. So his website is hpcng.org, hpcng.org, and they have set up a Slack channel. And the Slack channel is to discuss um, how... This might look if somebody, if the person who created CentOS in the first place just came back and said, let's go back to taking uh, the code from Red Hat, recompiling it and releasing it as a community operating system. And there is all the benefit in the world to both the community for that to happen and Red Hat. So I cannot I cannot ask strongly enough to please support uh, Gregory's effort at hpcng.org, hpcng.org. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But I think this is a, a, an incredibly, I think this is an incredibly interesting decision from Red Hat. I There's a lot of people that are quick to jump to a side and say, well, this is the best thing ever. This is the worst thing ever. I don't think, I, I really don't think unless you're living on CentOS day in, day out, and you have a mix with proper Red Hat supported environments that you really understand why Red Hat is doing this and why it is in some ways beneficial to us as a community. Uh, you'd have to see how many times uh, you you wind up saying to yourself, I wish I could be testing where I knew RHEL was skating to rather than where we are currently or where we've been which is oftentimes the way that you troubleshoot a CentOS box or a Red Hat box. They're in production for a very long time. They typically don't have a lot of changes. They're pretty much set up and, and, and run them like application, like, uh, you know, dedicated boxes for those, you know, for those things in, in smaller environments anyway. And you're, and so when you're, when you're leaving that and, and going out and saying, okay, you're coming out of that environment and saying, okay, now we have CentOS, which is the same code, but doesn't have any of the support, doesn't have any of the security updates, doesn't have, or well, at the same schedule. You you've already started with a different with two different products, and it's and that's a weird model for Red Hat to try to support. I'm going to take this code and then I'm going to release it for free over here, but still buy this thing over there. Yeah, is it the community enterprise operating system, or do you have the is the community enterprise operating system really Red Hat? And when you want the community enterprise operating system, you have to pay for it because it costs money to maintain that. So, I, you know what I would encourage people to do is let this play out a little bit before we get the pitchforks out. The other thing I would encourage people to do is lay off the entitlement. You know, yes, it's an open source project. And yes, there are a lot of good people that have put in a lot of really hard work to 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 improve uh, CentOS and ultimately Red Hat. And But what you have to understand is, again, Red Hat goes out into the community and hires those people to come work for them and work on the same projects that they're already building. And Red Hat has an established reputation of doing that. And so the, the thing that concerns those of us that have for a long time been very supportive of Red Hat 
is this follows, of course, the, the change, the buyout from IBM. And now all of a sudden, this is something that has a very clear business advantage and not so clear of a community advantage. And I really hope that as, uh, that as, as CentOS Stream sits as the development platform between Fedora and Red Hat, I, I really hope that, that they're able to build a, a bunch of value into that. And I hope that, that Matt, Matthew Miller and the, and the team at Fedora will continue to push Fedora into that enterprise space um, because there is absolutely a place for that, for that community enterprise space. It absolutely exists. Um, and I, I think that, I think that, um, that we'll see where the decision goes, but it's, it's scary. So here's the, here's the dates, the things you have to know. The updates for CentOS uh, 8, which is the last distribution that is going to be released, is the non-stream uh, edition, um, will continue through December 31st of 2021. 2021, December 31st. So we have a little over a year uh, to get all of our stuff in order. Updates for CentOS 7 will continue through June of, uh, 20th of 2024. And the updates for CentOS 6 uh, ended, obviously, on November 30th, as we said. So where you're at is they're cutting short the support cycle for regular CentOS 8. They do have a fairly straightforward upgrade path. Um, we have a link for you in the show notes, uh, but it's a Red Hat article, and it shows you in, in just two or three steps how you can convert a CentOS 8 box to a CentOS stream box. So you'll continue to get updates. Um, and the idea here is to, you know, to get packages out to the community. So developers have the latest and greatest from a system admins perspective. If anything makes it easier to get patches and faster, the better. And so that's, that's what they're trying to do. But I, I, uh, I'm disappointed, I guess I, the, the entire premise of CentOS in fact, the reason that the vast majority of people used CentOS was because it was rebuilt rel. And and now they've undercut that. And I there's not much more to say than that. So uh again, um the that that community discussion uh will continue to evolve. We invite you to send feedback at at uh, live at asknoahshow.com, as well as I would invite you to support um Gregory and his project to uh to rebuild a community operating system and have something that truly is in the hands of the community. That's, that is something we absolutely need. Again, 1-855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. We didn't get to our gadget of the week, and this week I was particularly excited about it too. So I, we had a discussion in, in, in the Geek Lab, and somebody had, we were talking about um, ripping uh, Blu-rays and DVDs. And the discussion came because I'm transitioning off of uh, desktops and I'm going to transition onto laptops. And I was explaining that I have essentially, uh, I had one laptop, I had my ThinkPad and I bought a, and I was given one for the radio station that I work at, not a ThinkPad, but a HP ProBook has Thunderbolt on it. And so I started to have this thing, depending on what I was doing that day, I was swapping between these two computers. So eventually I ended up purchasing a third uh, ThinkPad, I bought a, a ThinkPad T480 used off of eBay and um, loaded it up. And, and so that became my ultra speed laptop. And then I had a personal laptop and then I have a laptop for working at the radio station. So depending on what hat I'm wearing, I was using a, a different computer. Now that's fantastic because it means that all of the data and corporate stuff and all this stuff that I have to have for the radio station is all on that computer. All three of them are running, running Linux. Um, and all of my stuff for ultra speed is on there and I'm never interrupted with that when I'm doing projects at home with my kids. So it's, it's turned out to be really nice 
Um, but the issue was obviously I have uh, I have some poor eyesight, and so and I sit hours and hours and hours working on my computer, and so I want a docking station, and to have one at work and I have one at home. And what I've gotten in the habit of doing then is just picking the the laptop I want or the task I'm doing and plugging it into whatever docking station I'm at. Works great. So we're having this discussion in the Geek Lab and talking about how me and this other user uh, are 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 switching over primarily to primarily to laptops. And I made a suggestion. I said, yeah, you know, one of the first things that bit me though was an optical drive because I was so used to having a desktop. My kids would say, hey, we want to rip this DVD or we want to rip this program or whatever. And I would go to copy that information off my kids' school photos. Another great example uh, comes in an optical disc and I have no way of reading that. So I do a bunch of research and I end up buying uh, this um, external Blu-ray writer made from a company called MTHS Tech. Uh, Cheap Chinese, uh, not cheap, but Chinese brand and uh, not recognizable. Uh, so I get it. And as you might expect, works out of the box with Linux because it's just a USB drive. But then I start looking over the way this thing is built and it's, it's just, it's an exceptionally good little external Blu-ray drive. So they have a micro uh, as they have a micro USB connector on the back, which should be better if it was type C, but it works about how you would expect. You have a little dongle cable, you plug it in and then you're able to use the drive. Now there's this obnoxious, like, pulsing blue, red, green light that changes colors. And it might be psychedelic for some of you, but I, I find it to be pretty obnoxious. Other than that though, works absolutely fantastic where this thing really takes the cake though in from the design perspective, I disconnect this drive and I put it into my backpack and think to myself, I'm take off and go do whatever it is I'm doing. I pull it out of my backpack to go rip a disc. And lo and behold, I have forgotten they're a little included uh, cable. Now, for me, this isn't necessarily an issue because like most tech nerds do, I carry in my backpack a little pouch. And inside of that pouch, I have all of the little emergency connectors, one of which, of course, is a, a mini or micro USB cable. But before I can dig that out, I notice on the bottom of this Blu-ray drive is a cutout. Inside of the cutout is a spare cable. And that's built into the drive, so it can't be lost or forgotten. And at the end of the spare cable is both a type A USB jack and a type C USB jack. So even if you have one of those new confangled MacBooks or if you have a Dell XPS, that uh, the newer ones don't have a type A port on them. And indeed, that's the that's decidedly the direction we're skating to with USB 4. So if you ever forget your cable, you're, you're, fu- you're future proof. And this, uh, this thing is 96 bucks available on Amazon, thousand, uh, four and a half star reviews. Uh, absolutely fantastic little Blu-ray drive. And, uh, again, works natively in Linux with, uh, with make MKV as well as, uh, making ISOs. Um, I did get another, that, that led to another discussion in the Geek Lab about ripping DVDs. And uh, we've seen this come in the feedback a couple of times. Um, we'll probably do a more elaborate breakdown of it at some point. But people have asked, they've said, hey, I know you used to rip all of your media as ISOs. Do you still do that? And indeed, if it's a disc I've purchased, if it's media that, that it's, a, it's a DVD that I've, I've bought, and, uh, and then, yes, absolutely, I will back up that that entire disc. But oftentimes what'll happen is if I have, uh, if it's something that I, I purchased secondhand or a secondhand store and it's, it wasn't about, um, you know, purchasing the disc with 
the special features and all of that stuff. I didn't care about any of that. I really just wanted the movie. Um, in those events, I'm no longer making cop. I'm not no longer ripping the entire ISO. I'm just ripping the the the, the feature film and throwing that on the NAS. And the reason for that was, essentially, uh, the ISO was nice because it gave you a functional copy of what that optical disc was, what that DVD or what that Blu-ray disc had. And so all of the special features and even the menu structure and all of those kinds of things, some of them are pretty cool and, and have some, some interactive properties to it. And my kids really enjoyed it. And so I, I started uh, down that road, but the longer it, it is fundamentally incompatible with a number of other streaming systems. And so it didn't work very well with Jellyfin, didn't work at all, I think, with Plex. Um, and so because that, that because that's problematic and because MKVs are so unproblematic, the other thing is they really are what, if you think about it, if we were starting over from scratch and a Hollywood studio produced a movie and they were going to distribute it to the masses, if we could just sit down and decide how we wanted that movie delivered, would we not want it in an open source, uh, open, open standards container and published and then just the movie file? Uh, rather than what all of the other people around thought they could add. Again, certainly there's a time and a place for that, and that's I'm still keeping the ISOs for those purposes, but I just store them in a separate place. And so I have uh, uh, disk images, which has all of the original ISOs that I, of course, ripped, and then I just have a second folder that I have all of my, uh, my MKVs in, and that's what all of the media library scrapes from. Um, it, you know, the, the other side of that is it, it also it, it for, it, it serves as... Um, as a as a second copy of a lot of those data, a lot of that data too. There's been times where I've ripped the disk, and the uh, the original ISO file is fine, but the converted MKV is not. And so the ability to go back in there and just get that MKV, or hey, I had the I have the ISO, and now I want that second subtitle tracker. I do want to go back and see what that what those special features were. I have the opportunity to. Uh, to do that. Brandon in the chat room says CentOS 8 is being supported until 2024. CentOS Stream 9 appears to be supported for five years. It's going to have to follow all the RHEL ABI API commands. If something breaks, something breaks in RHEL and is broken uh, and not just CentOS. So that's interesting information. That the 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 thing that if I were to if I were to have changed any one thing about the way that this story broke, it would have been uh, the way that it was presented because cutting the life cycle short of an operating system at the same time that you are uh, cutting the uh, cutting the cutting the lifestyle sh- sh- lifestyle sh- short of the operating system at the same time that you're making a big change was probably just too much for people, and we know that because people just like to complain. <laughs> And that's uh, not the right uh, outro. Hey, I'm glad you guys were able to join us. We record the show live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. All of the articles and references that we use to do the show, you can find them at podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can follow us live at Ask Noah Show on Twitter. That's the, that's the way to stay up to date. You can follow me personally at Colonel Linux. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.